You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, July 31st, 2022 edition of Labor Express. For several episodes now, ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned on June 24th, I've been promising to air a program looking at this issue from a working class woman's perspective, and tonight I'll finally do that. On the June 26th episode of Labor Express, I described the court's decision to end the constitutional right to an abortion as a far-right-dominated court established through a persistence of a minority rule in this country, stripping away bodily autonomy for women and endorsing forced pregnancy. I also described it as a counter-revolution targeting women as citizens with full rights and an effort to roll back hard-fought gains and to turn back the clock not just 50 years but over 100 years. I want to add to that description tonight by, again, calling this decision for what it really is, forced, involuntary, unpaid reproductive labor. The segments you will hear on tonight's program buttress those arguments and offer even more analysis, especially from a working-class labor movement perspective, and some ideas of how we can fight back. Once again, I'm getting a lot of help from my friends to make this possible. The Labor Radio Podcast Network is once again proving its tremendous value as a resource for labor news. In the second half of tonight's program, we'll hear from our old friends at Building Bridges, your community and labor report on WBAI in New York City. Hosts Ken Nash and me Roseberg talk with National Nurses United co-president Deborah Berger to get an organized labor view on the issue and how the labor movement is responding. We'll also hear from members of UE Local 696 in Western Pennsylvania. These workers are on staff at Planned Parenthood, and like many Planned Parenthood staff around the country, they are organizing to both ensure expanded services to the thousands of women now in desperate situations, as well as to protect their own rights on the job. But first, we turn to our fellow Midwestern friends at the Heartland Labor Forum in Kansas City. Just before the Supreme Court announced its rollback of women's and workers' rights on their June 23rd episode, so literally right before, the day before the court made its announcement, host Judy Ansel talked with Ashley All of Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, Darcy Wood, Legislative Director of the American Postal Workers Union Local 67, as well as being active with Kansas City Jobs with Justice, and Max Skidmore, retired professor of political science at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, as well as the author of a recently released book called Abortion and Informed Common Sense. She gathered this group together to talk about the ruling that we all knew was coming. Despite being aired the day prior to the June 24th ruling, Judy's guests were already mobilizing to resist the court's attack on women. I'm going to start about 10 minutes into the full interview. What I'm airing tonight is about a 20-minute excerpt of the full 40-minute segment. At this point, we are starting where Max Skidmore has already discussed the history of abortion in the United States. Very interesting stuff. But what I think is really interesting is what he says next about the possible relationship between abortion rights and the 13th Amendment. So here's Judy Ansel asking Skidmore about the legal argument for abortion rights. So, Max, I didn't hear any of these religious interpretations before Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. In fact, Roe versus Wade was supported by both Republicans and Democrats. Right. And it was, uh, I don't remember what the vote was in the Supreme Court, but it was more than just a near majority. And so a lot of these arguments that, these religious arguments, these so-called pseudoscience arguments, they really have arisen since them and not for instance, in the Bible. Oh, yes, right. there is so, no scriptural basis for uh, opposition to abortion. So what what is, what is was the legal argument for the right to abortion, real briefly, if you can? It was based on the right to privacy. 
but I suggest that there is another uh, right that supplements the right to privacy, and that is restricting abortion enslaves women. You can look up a definition of slavery, and if you have an all-powerful government uh, determining what human beings do, you're enslaving those human beings. And the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery. Involuntary servitude is prohibited unless it's a punishment for a commission of crime. And unless you assume that women, whenever they get pregnant, have committed crimes, then there's no constitutional justification for prohibiting abortion. In fact, there are constitutional protections for abortion if we didn't have a corrupted Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, Darcy, from your viewpoint, what benefits did the Roe decision bring to women and families? Well, I would say this is a working woman's issue. But I'd like to point out that this is a working man's issue. It's a working family's issue. Working families have the right to make decisions for themselves economically. Uh, the decisions to when to plan their families, those will be taken away. Um, also, I'm concerned about a pro-worker agenda is a pro-life agenda. But we don't have a living wage. We don't have paid maternity leave. Um, and these are some of the reasons why many women uh, seek abortions because of economic reasons uh, and then you're you're going to take those decisions away so um, I've heard that a lot of women joined the workforce uh, subsequent to Roe versus Wade not just because of Roe versus mm -hmm. Wade but Roe versus Wade created the opportunities that women had to plan right right and and again you're taking that decision away from working families um, and and we haven't even addressed the high uh, percentage of uh, uh, black women and babies that are dying in this country we haven't addressed the problems that we do have uh, for working families in this country uh, and yet we want to make things harder um, you know and we're now we're looking at criminalizing women it's not just abortion itself now it's what about a woman that's had a miscarriage now she's being looked at as maybe she's possibly had an abortion or or tried to uh, abort the fetus herself um, they're going to you're going to criminalize women for that I, I believe the number is around 40 percent of women uh, need medical care now are you going to have women that are not going to seek that medical care uh, because of the fear? Uh, what about ectopic pregnancies? I mean, this is this is really it's really fundamentally wrong. We're going to send women to federal crimes and take away their vote. It's just it's it's really going to affect this country in ways people I think people have not thought about. I really do. Well, let me throw that to Ashley too. What what do you think it's going to look like if Roe falls? And if we lose the right to an abortion, even in Kansas, what's it going to look like? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you know, this is an absolutely unprecedented moment. Um, with the leaked decision that we saw come out of the U.S. Supreme Court, there, you know, we're facing a real chance that um, Roe will be overturned. And in August, um, Kansas may be the first state to vote on reproductive rights following that decision. And I think that you can look around to states um, in the Midwest to see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, we will, there will no be, there will no longer be um, a protection for, um, there will no longer be um, a, a federal protection for abortion. And so the only protection we could have is the Kansas Supreme Court ruling that came down in 2019. What will happen is women will lose, as Darcy said, 
the right to make those choices for herself and her family. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, and that's very critical. And as you mentioned a minute ago, one politician has already said they want to make Kansas the most pro-life state in the country. Well, that requires um, essentially a, a complete ban on abortion, which I think is what we'll see within the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, um, a legislator in Kansas already filed a bill that um, had no exception for rape, no exception for incest, um, and really no exception for protecting the life of the mother. Um, the only exception was a, a very like narrowly defined eptopic pregnancy, um, but only if there was no other choice. So I think that that's where we're headed. Unfortunately, especially in states like Kansas and others that tend to lean more politically to the right. Anything else any of you want to add to that question? Yes, the whole notion of pro-life is a distortion of the language. These people aren't pro-lifers, they're forced birthers. If they were pro-lifers, they'd be opposed to capital punishment. They would be in favor of handgun control and uh, abolition of assault weapons. They would be uh, opposed to war, but they're only opposed to abortion. So they are forced birthers. They're not pro-life. The whole notion of the Kansas uh, constitutional effort, they have cynically labeled it, value them both. And you have a silhouette on the the signs of a mother and a, a child, a born child, by the way. But no matter what you think about abortion, no one seriously can believe that it is valuing a mother or a woman to give government the authority to tell her what she has to do and what she can't do. Uh, That is not uh, valuing a woman. And to uh, imply that it is is an insult to the intelligence of Kansans and everyone else. It seems like a majority of of Americans are opposed to reversing Roe and stripping women of their rights. Um, How did the opponents of women's rights gain the upper hand in the Supreme Court? Um, Max, could you start with that one? And in the state of Missouri, which has a trigger law, and then Darcy, could you pick that one up? Well, there's been a a very concerted effort for about 40 years or so. And I I think of it as corrupting the court, packing the court. If people talk about expanding the court now, they they shouldn't say packing the court. What it is is unpacking the court Uh because the court is corrupted. The court needs to have balance. And now it has six voices that are conservative ideologues. Um, regardless of what the law says, uh, they follow dictates of their church or, or whatever. It is essential that this change, and it can only change by putting more people on the court. I would argue for six. You can make a good case for a 15-person court. You could have one justice supervising each judicial circuit with the chief overseeing it all. Um, but we need balance on the court and we need to unpack the court. That's excellent. This has been talked about before. Something that we don't talk about enough is the courts, not just the Supreme Court. Uh, We're talking about district courts. We're talking about people in the lower courts making those decisions. And we don't talk about that enough, and we don't ask working families to look at that point when we're asking them to vote. When you vote for someone, yes, there's a term, and obviously you have things that are important to you, but the larger question is, who is this person and what are they gonna do and how are they gonna vote to put judges on the court that could sit on these courts for 40 to 50 years? And this is very important because those decisions will far outlast the person you're voting for. So, absolutely. Right now, Kansas has a limited right 
um, to in 2019, um, they found a right to personal autonomy, which meant you had the right to make choices about your own body, and that included the right um, to have an abortion if you if you so chose. And if we can protect that right, it is limited. There are restrictions on abortion, significant restrictions on abortion already in the state. But if we can protect that that limited right for Kansas women, then Kansas women, even regardless of what happens with the Supreme Court decision, um, Kansas women will be able to make those choices for themselves, um, free from government interference. And that is how we empower um, women and families. Max, you want to add something? I'd say absolutely. And there's a basic contradiction in that most of the people, or certainly I would argue a majority of the people who oppose abortion, also portray themselves as opposing big government. Now, you cannot have an effective anti-abortion policy unless you have a powerful, powerful government, uh, an authoritarian government. Every woman who becomes pregnant immediately becomes subject to government control. Now, if you don't believe in big government and government control and do believe in restricting abortion, you're not thinking through the issue. You cannot have effective abortion without big government. I just saw an article about how in Poland, which is a pretty authoritarian government these days, they've started a maternity registry registering all pregnant women so that they can keep track of them to make sure that they don't have abortions. That's pretty scary. And that's what will happen. Uh, You can have physical examinations of women uh, periodically to assume uh, to assure that they're not pregnant. So we've just been talking at break about the criminalization that's going to occur of women, of doctors, of somebody who drives you to you know to get an abortion, an illegal abortion, if Roe falls and these states pass laws like Oklahoma or Texas have. Ashley, talk about this. What you know? What would be permitted? What wouldn't be permitted? Well, I think what has been pretty alarming to many people is just how much of an extreme shift there's been in some of the bills and the laws that have been passed banning abortion. Not too long ago, um, exceptions for rape and incest and to save the life of the mother were pretty well you know, accepted by um, even a good portion of people who would consider themselves or identify as pro-life. That is not the case anymore. You can see in states, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, a lot of different states are passing bills. In fact, in Kansas, a legislator introduced a bill this session that would ban abortion completely, um, had no uh, exceptions for rape or incest, and had almost no exception to save the life of the mother. The only exception was eptopic pregnancy, which, as we all know, is incompatible with life for both the mother and the baby. Mm -hmm. So we have shifted pretty significantly to an extreme position on some of these bans that will put women, girls, their lives at risk. And that is, um, I think that should be alarming for, for Kansans and Americans. I think the other thing to consider is that most people are not on the far left or the far right on this issue. Most people are somewhere in the middle um, and have you know don't have necessarily a black and white view, but they do believe the vast majority. I think 80% of Americans and over 60% of Kansans believe that women ought to have access to abortion care when they need it. It's interesting when you consider giving government the power to forbid abortion. If you give government that power, if you have a different kind of authoritarianism, that same government then would have the power to require abortion. Think about it. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that you'd have that government require pregnancy. If we pass the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, would that 
stop this assault on abortion? It could, depending on how, how it's interpreted. I, I, that just occurred to me today right. that it could be a possible solution. Right. I'm particularly sensitive to the issue. I'm a man sitting in a room full of women, and I'm talking about this. And a woman can uh, describe her experiences far better than, than I can, but I can, I can empathize. I'm, I'm an ancient, straight, white guy, and uh, I feel very, very strongly about this. And when you empower government to control people, you need to be very cautious what you do because uh, be careful what you wish for, as they say. Darcy, you want to add? I, I just want to say one thing that when you, when you, well, I have more than one, but I want to speak to that because we have a terrible history in our country sure of sterilizing mm -hmm. indigenous women and other women in this country. So when you go back to say, talking about forced abortions for people who don't want it, then we have to go down that road, and that's that's scary too. I do want to say something that that you had uh, you had touched on earlier, because uh, I do think about the working woman's and family's perspective. Rich people are not going to have a problem getting abortions. They can leave this country, even if, or, or go somewhere in this country or leave this country altogether. And poor women are not going to be able to do that. Families are going to be affected by that. And also, this does spread out. This is affecting birth control, uh, IVF, people that are trying to have children mm -hmm. and won't be able to now. Yeah, and then the framing of the anti-abortion issue. Uh, Max, your gloss redefines anti-abortion this way. Opponents of abortion who style themselves as pro-life obviously concerned about life in the womb, but generally only until birth. Forced birthers would be more descriptive. So, you know, that was, and I, you mentioned that just a minute ago as well. Yes, that yes, and I'm, I'm really um, sensitive to the issue of justifying abortion. We shouldn't have to justify abortion. You shouldn't have to have an excuse. You shouldn't have to have to be scrutinized to determine whether your motives are pure or, or what. I don't think any man has the right to tell a woman that she must or can't have an abortion. I don't think a woman has the right to tell another woman either. I think that should be purely a personal decision. It's not as if this is an extreme position on one side versus an extreme position on the other side. It's either freedom or not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, and Ashley, you know, I'm really curious how the campaign in Kansas is going to be framing because Max mentioned that the people who are for the constitutional amendment are using the slogan, value them both, which mm -hmm. makes me kind of cry. But anyway, <laughs> and you even used the word pro-life just a, a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. What do you think of these frames and, and what? how are you going to frame it? Well, I would, I would say that there are political frames and then there are that most regular people, I think, mm -hmm live within and I think pro-life and pro-choice is very much a political frame and we divide people into two mm -hmm. two buckets you know this is how you are you're either pro-life or pro-choice which is I think a very like a false um, division I think most people um, are somewhere in the middle and even I think there was a, a Gallup poll that was done that had um, asked people specifically to self-identify one of those two groups and it was pretty evenly split but then when you ask them whether or not they believed that people ought to have a right to access abortion care, 80% said yes. So clearly there is a there is kind of a um, just a difference in opinion about what those terms mean. It, here in Kansas, I think that it is a more conservative state, but I think that what's important is looking at what I think Darcy said earlier, which was privacy. Most Kansans, regardless of party affiliation, would agree that you ought to be able to make private medical decisions for yourself free from government overreach. And if the amendment passes, it will give 
politicians the power to pass whatever laws they want regarding abortion, up to and including a complete ban. Despite what they, I think, tried to make us feel like was included in the amendment, there are no protections for rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. And, you know, the the wording's particularly confusing. You can argue whether that's intentional or not, but most Kansans believe that we ought to make those choices ourselves. And people who are, you know, faced with a serious health issue or a serious complication in their pregnancy ought to be able to make choices of how to move forward. And women who who have other um, circumstances in their lives ought to be able to make those decisions that best um, represent what's good for themselves and their families. Um, And they ought to be able to make that decision privately with their doctor um, and potentially with their, you know, support system. I I actually want to go back real quick to what you said, and actually Max said as well about the framing issue. This reminds me of something, and at my age, I have I was born around the time of of a Roe versus Wade. Too often when we talk about this, I notice we talk about young women, young single women, sometimes 18, 16. There's a narrative that reminds me of Reagan and uh, welfare queens the black woman in the Cadillac in New York City riding around when we know now that it is mostly poor white people in Republican states, uh, unfortunately voting against their own interests. I find this interesting because most women, I shouldn't say most women, but many women that, that seek abortions already have one or two children. This is where it goes back to a working families issue for me, because there's probably a partner at home that you're, you're taking the right away from to make these decisions together about what's good about their family, and that, that right's being trampled on. When, when this gets when this gets overturned. What should people do who believe that women should have a right to make decisions about their bodies? What can we do? What kind of, of effort can we all get involved with? Well, I think in Kansas, as you mentioned, I work for a group called Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, um, and we are a bipartisan coalition of groups that are running a campaign specifically to stop the amendment and encourage voters to vote no on August 2nd. There's a lot of ways people can get involved, and I think that we've seen a huge increase um, since that leaked decision in people volunteering just for phone banks or canvassing. We also just encourage people to talk to their family and friends about what this will mean and make sure friends and family are registered to vote and make sure that they, in fact, do go vote. It's on the primary ballot, which is unusual. I think that was intentionally done because typically a primary electorate is smaller and more partisan, more conservative. But both Democrats, Republicans, unaffiliated voters, independent voters, everybody in Kansas has the right to vote on this particular issue and should. How do people get in touch with you if they want to volunteer? We have a website, kansansforfreedom.com, that they can visit. There are um, ways to sign up to volunteer. Then you can get um, different activities and different events that we're, that we're hosting. And then there's also uh, just other groups we're working with. Mainstream Coalition, League of Women Voters, a lot of different partner groups that are very active across the state and communities canvassing and talking to voters. And write letters to the editor. And Darcy, what can we do in our unions? Talk to your people, register to vote, get out the vote, which we are already doing now. I know that's been talked about extensively. We have to move our people to the polls, and we have to make them understand the working issue, the working issues for this, and the other, when we, again, talk about pro-life, you know, the working families issues are pro-life when we're talking about decent wages, when we're talking about medical care, maternity leave, the things that, as you pointed out, we need after the baby's born. I want to say one quick thing because you and I were talking about it. We also want to make the case that 
women can just have these babies, as, as you made that case, Max, and they can just be put up in foster homes. Many of the states in this country, their foster homes and uh, adoption facilities are woefully underfunded. So mm-hmm. to say that they will be able to just take care of these kids is, is quite frankly a lie. It really is. So those are the points I'd like to make. Well, thank you all. We've been talking to Ashley All from Kansans for Constitutional Freedom, Darcy Wood from the American Postal Workers Union, and Max Skidmore, retired political scientist and author. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for by Working People. The full 40-minute interview by the Heartland Labor Forum's Judy Ansel of Ashley All of Kansas for Constitutional Freedom, Darcy Wood, Legislative Director of the American Postal Workers Union Local 67, and Max Skidmore, author of Abortion and Informed Common Sense, can be found at a link up at laborexpress.org. So if you want to hear the full 40-minute interview, check out that link up at laborexpress.org. We'll hear some more analysis of the rollback of abortion rights from a labor movement perspective from our friends at Building Bridges later in the program. But before I go to break, I want to air an excerpt of some speeches by Planned Parenthood staff, members of UE Local 696 in western Pennsylvania, from a rally they held in Pittsburgh on July 27th. As you can probably imagine, these workers who are on the front lines of dealing with the fall of the Supreme Court's decision are feeling overwhelmed. They are all committed 110% to the work of Planned Parenthood and have been especially proactive in trying to find ways to meet the needs of the women in the 20-plus states who have already or soon will lose legal access to abortion. Unfortunately, they are carrying out this fight understaffed and disrespected by their employer, Planned Parenthood. It's a situation that has spurred organizing efforts by staff nationwide, but in Pennsylvania, they had a head start. The Planned Parenthood staff there had formed their union in 2021, and they won union recognition 14 months ago. But like typical corporate bosses, the management of Planned Parenthood has refused to settle a first contract. What do we want? When do we want it? When do we want? When do we want it? We are here today asking for your support because of how long our contract negotiations have gone on. As a union, we have shown unity and solidarity with numerous internal actions over the last 14 months. We have petitioned and made our demands of our employer clear and unanimous. However, our employer's response to our demands has been the bare minimum. We formed this union to have a voice on the job because no one knows how to do our job better than us, the workers. I start my day off the same as many of you. A cup of iced coffee, some snuggles with my cat or dog, and I sit in rush hour traffic on my way to work. However, as I walk into work, I get screamed at. I get told I'm a horrible person. I should be ashamed. I'm a monster. At the start of my day, I take my first patient. They nervously fidget in the chair as I take their blood pressure and their medical history. How confident do you feel in your decision? I ask. They do the best to hold back tears as they say they can't afford another child. Pregnancy is too high risk. They simply just don't want to be pregnant. It doesn't matter the reason, they are scared. I talk them through the procedure I'll be in with you the whole time, I reassure you. I hold their hand, I hold their hair back when they vomit, I get them a blanket and some ginger ale, as I am thanked for simply being there. I was a patient at Planned Parenthood a few years ago, and I really value this opportunity to speak up in support of the workers who supported me. By that I mean, throughout a process intentionally designed to dehumanize me, infantilize me, and bully or frustrate me into changing my mind, 
These workers weren't the only people who treated me like an adult human being. On the day of this bonus decision, and those that followed, we began the day as many others, incredibly understaffed. Many of us juggling multiple different positions, desperately trying to meet all of our patients' demands. Our phone lines flooded, and as we said before, we had one person on them. Patients were turned away by nearby abortion bans in nearby states, calling in sobbing, angry, scared, and desperate for our help. Without any leadership or direction from our employer, we, the union members, had to call ourselves into work to handle the calls from these abandoned Ohio patients. Thank God we have a union. I don't know how we could ever survive this crisis without a union. It's workers who make our society function, right? It's workers who educate our children. It's workers who care for the elderly. And it's workers who deliver patient care on the front lines, even when things are difficult, like during a pandemic, or in the face of an unprecedented right-wing assault on our human right to an abortion. Despite all these added pressures, we still remain terribly underpaid. Many of us just don't make enough money to survive on our own, and many of our members work second jobs and even have to donate our own plasma, our own blood, to make ends meet. I know for myself, I'm about $500 in unexpected fees away from not being able to make it each month. The staffing crisis we faced at the affiliate was not unavoidable. With better wages and working conditions, we would have been able to recruit and retain staff that we needed to safely and effectively do our job. Management of Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania needs to act like the progressive employer that it respects its workers and not like a bunch of typical corporate bosses. We invite the leadership of Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania to join us and come to the bargaining table now and quickly negotiate a contract. We, the unionized Planned Parenthood workers of UE 696, will continue to fight to uphold Planned Parenthood's mission. It is the time for our employer to uphold their end. It is their time to tend to its team to negotiate a fair contract for livable wages and better working conditions so that we can meet the needs of our patients. It is time for Planned Parenthood to stand by their own ethos, again, to tend to the team. The clinic staff is that team. We are the ones face to face with the trauma, the sadness and the fear. We are the team taking on the burden and making sacrifices for Planned Parenthood's missions and values. If Planned Parenthood values its own ethos and the team that upholds those, they need to give us the staff, the wages, and the fair contract that we deserve and have for the last 14 months. You're all with us, and we together are going to do whatever it takes to get what we need to provide the services that are so vital and life-saving. We have more than enough to be able to make sure that we come to work with the correct staffing. WP cannot afford to not negotiate a fair union contract so we can do our jobs. Enough is enough. Thank you. Extra points to any listeners who identified Chicago's own Mark Meinster from UE as one of the speakers in that segment. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. 
We need to take a brief break, but when we return, we'll hear from Deborah Berger of National Nurses United about the Laird Moon's response to the attack on abortion rights. So make sure not to go anywhere and stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. On their July 11th episode of Building Bridges, your community and labor report, which airs on WBAI in New York City, hosts Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash talked with National Nurses United co-president Deborah Berger. National Nurses United has been consistently one of the most progressive and militant unions in the country. The Supreme Court had just overturned Roe v. Wade two weeks before, and Ken and Mimi wanted Deborah's thoughts on how organized labor was addressing the situation. Note that I've also apologized on our previous couple of episodes for not reporting on developments at the AFL-CIO's convention in June, overshadows I felt it was by the Labor Notes conference a week later. Well, Deborah offers some perspective on the results of the convention, at least on this issue. So a lot of people don't think about uh, other than bread and butter issues, as though this isn't a bread and butter issue. Of course it is. But they don't think about human rights issues as the province of labor. For you folks, it certainly is. Talk about why and what the SCOTUS decision in Roe v. Wade means to your union and what it means to people with reproductive functions and what it means to health care. Okay. Well, as nurses, we not only have a duty to advocate for our patients and their right to make their own health care decisions, but legally we are held to a high standard for making sure that we advocate in the interest of the patient and exclude doctors, politicians, police, hospital employers, anything like that. So... Uh, we have a legal obligation to advocate for our patients. And the basic tenets of ethical health care dictate that patients should enjoy autonomy, self-determination, and dignity over their bodies and their lives when they receive health care. And nurses understand this because we are at the bedside when we're trying to work around all or through all of these laws that have uh, changed in a matter of hours in each state. One day you go to work and it's one law, you go to lunch and come back, the law has changed. So there's chaos in the system from the Supreme Court decision and the politicians are creating chaos and destruction because their uh, policies do not make sense in the healthcare arena. And they keep trying to say that when they made these laws, their intention wasn't to prevent women from getting life-saving treatments, but that's not what the law says. And so um, because of all of their uh, poor judgments and poor lawmaking, lazy lawmaking, they have put patients' lives at risk, and they've threatened the license and profession of nurses. Deborah, do you think that patients' rights should be incorporated into union contracts, such as your own, for cost of abortion care, whether it's within the state of residence or outside? 
That's going to be a hard lift, um, but we are making sure that we can advocate as union members for making sure that patients' rights are respected and make sure that when we're um, treating patients that we can um, make sure that they're taken care of in the way is best for their appropriate condition. So, yes, I think we should be working on that, and uh, we have number a number of uh, issues on model contract language, and uh, even in the UC system, which just settled their contract, there is language which could be interpreted to say that um, these uh, employee employer hospital committees that have teeth could uh, look at uh, reproductive rights in full health care for our patients. I want to push further on the the issue of workers' rights. When I was thinking about the considerations, of course, you practitioners would think first and foremost about the care of patients. But as workers, as workers, all too often unions leave in abeyance those human rights issues that affect their workers. Now, this is an odious, repugnant setback. Before 1973, in fact, when Roe v. Wade was uh, made law by the Supreme Court, it, it's before that because of the trigger laws that now are being set in place by the state. So, Deborah, as, as a union, as a representative of workers, what are some of the things that you think needs to be done to give the muscle to organize labor, to the working class movement, to the workers' movement? to assure that their workers have the right to on-demand, free, safe abortion? It's going to require not only uh, working with other unions, but community groups to pressure uh, the Biden administration, who's already agreed to get rid of the filibuster, and the politicians in those various states. Some of those states, politicians have started backing down from the laws that they have uh, implemented, but we can't let them off the hook. And unions have a very um, huge role to play in this uh, moment in time in history because um, women's rights, and people of color's social justice rights are very much on the line with this decision because it wasn't just Roe v. Wade that they overturned, but they're also using that same argument to look at other uh, previous decisions that we thought were settled law and uh, try to imp- implement them as well. So um, unions that look at... Um, their job as not just protecting workers on the job, but protecting society as a whole um, will do really well in making sure um, the community is uh, going to rectify this. And I think one of the things that uh, 
we forget when we're um, doing our job is that if it weren't for the unions standing up for our workers' rights in the facilities, we wouldn't even be able to report some of the uh, abuses during even during the pandemic that the employers were uh, foisting upon workers. So uh, union protections are also a huge component of being able to be whistleblowers. Uh, a piece of legislation in Congress right now, of course, it won't probably be uh, enacted without the elimination of the filibuster, the World Women's Health Protection Act calls for establishing a statutory right for health professionals to provide abortion care without any medically unnecessary restrictions or limitations. Mm -hmm. Do you think that needs to be emphasized? Do you think that needs to be pushed? We, we believe that we should use all of the tools available to us through collective bargaining, through power in the streets and uh, working with other groups to move these issues forward it's not this isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all kind of solution because the laws regarding reproductive rights and the right of a woman to make her own decision is changing hourly the chaos that's happening from this is enormous and so it's really um incumbent upon us to really <coughs> make sure that we can um, continue putting pressure. I mean, when you think about it, President Biden, who's a strong Catholic, has said he would uh, be willing to sign any legislation and go along with getting rid of the filibuster to protect a woman's right to reproductive uh, health care. That's huge. That tells me that he's paying attention to what's going on in this country and is really worried about what's going to happen to the poor and women of color and then just the fallout from that which is uh families being destroyed from uh all of this well i must admit that <laughs> legislation didn't come from uh, Pre president biden in any event and i'm a little bit more dubious i'm i'm i'm, I'm a lot more dubious about uh, how demonstrative he is and how much he's giving to this effort, mm -hmm. both before the Supreme Court and now. But I'm also interested in, in, in a dilemma that I think directly involves unions. Uh, in many instances, and how do we feel this, corporations, indeed corporations like Amazon, among others, who spent considerable amounts of money, Coca-Cola and others, very well-to-do corporations, who were in many instances <laughs> repressively and aggressively anti-union on one hand, are talking about providing some resources economically for pregnant employees whose states preclude their having an abortion to go outside of states to maybe areas like New York or California or the like. I'm, I'm concerned about the role of corporations, and I'm very concerned about the duality of 
Well, first of all, I'm concerned about turning to employer uh, employers and corporations for what should be a public right. But there's the third element of that, which is not only did they support anti-abortion work, but now they're going to uh, give some monies for it. What's that about? And what should well, be a union stance? If I may, just one last part of this on uh, corporations who are um, – have such a bad social agenda and anti-union agenda very often. I mean, what are we to do while we're in this terrible dilemma? I mean, what do you think well, as the, a working-class champion? What, the, what NNU understands is that when corporations, uh, most of these corporations are non-unionized, right? And so when a corporation says, we're going to pay expenses for travel, they, they talk about the travel, but they don't talk about release time. They fight to the nail every single day, paid medical leave. They fight it all the time. And when they say that they're going to pay the expenses, if you look at the fine print, oftentimes they're only paying for their managers, their administrators, uh, their quote, full-time workers, which they usually don't have, like Walmart and Amazon and all those others. So there aren't any, uh, isn't any pay. And when you look at who will benefit, it certainly isn't people of color and the working poor because they can't afford to take time off work even if their travel expenses were paid. And because it isn't in a union contract, they can rescind that promise any time they want, and it lets them off the hook by saying it's essentially blood washing. They're saying, our hands are clean, we provided this benefit, we have no blood on our hands if our employees die because of um, lack of access to health care. And it also lets them off the hook in pressuring the politicians to do the right thing, to step up and make uh, fill, removing the filibuster a priority so that Congress can do what they should. Every politician, whether they're Republican or Democrat or Green or whoever, actually needs to finally step up, get off their butts, and do the work to protect our communities. You know, Deborah. <laughs> Deborah, there's another uh, really uh, kind of hefty issue that I just want to uh, push a little on, and I'm I'm curious and I'm interested in politically, and I know it's a difficult question to ask uh, to put you in, but you know, I'm still going back to before 1973. Uh, the reality which I personally experienced through friends and family members of people who uh, did bleed to death in botched abortions and whose lives were destroyed for so many reasons due to the uh, inhibitions on one hand that were fostered, uh, some of the religiosity that precluded people from having abortions, and then the real prohibitions. Now, here we are before 1973, really. And in 
some of the poorest states and the states that most often have uh, people of color who will be prohibited from having abortions. To what extent do people like yourselves, and yes, as a union, who are health care practitioners, think about some of the things that were done before 1973? For example, people who had networks where they actually provided uh, service. They helped people go training on how to do uh, safe at-home abortions. And uh, additionally, they did, well, they actually uh, trained people to help facilitate the medical procedures. I'm not asking you to put yourselves per se on, on the line legally here, but what do you think about some of those ideas as a way of taking brilliant, dedicated healthcare professionals to contribute while we continue what no doubt will be the long fight for to uh, have legislation and uh, legislation that's enacted on a state level as well for abortion liberation. So just to be crystal clear, right now, even before the overturn of Roe v. Wade, women were having abortions that weren't in a healthcare setting because they did not have full access to healthcare, either through their employer because they belong to a, a religious hospital group or um, because they couldn't afford insurance. We still have uninsured people in this. So that is a huge problem. And it continues to be a problem and is exacerbated now by this legalized uh, ban on abortion in the various states. So it's still happening, even though um, we had legal access to legal abortion. The other thing is, is that when you allow people to be trained that have uh, the skills to uh, do the procedure, that is all well and good. But what we're concerned about when we're looking at this and allowing people to just go in and do these um, procedures, that they may not be getting the full service that they may require to um, actually get a safe abortion or have full access to reproductive rights. And so when we start just trying to change laws to fix a problem that should never have started in the first place, um, we want to make sure that first and foremost, the patients are protected and get Healthcare, because the reality is that women of color and the poor will be greatly affected by people that are so-called trained people to do abortion, and they may not be. Deborah, I also want to uh, ask, as you are one of the most socially conscious unions in the country, 
on all issues. You folks are there when there's an earthquake in Turkey. You are there when there's uh, Hurricane Maria in uh, Puerto Rico. You are in the House. But one of the things is that notwithstanding labor federations and so on, generally there's a real fragmentation in labor. Do you also see maybe convening a conference or literally bringing labor to the table for a collective strategy, if you will, to press ahead on using their might, their muscles, their treasuries on this specific issue? Well, I can't speak for other unions, but we uh, just maybe a month ago, we were at the AFL-CIO with one of the um, delegate unions. And for the first time ever, first time ever, historic, we passed um, a resolution reaffirming a woman's right to choose and reaffirming that women should have full reproductive rights, period. No qualifiers whatsoever. And we elected the first woman president of the AFL-CIO and the first black uh, secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO. So as far as uh, becoming um, change agents, I think that the unions are um, actually doing a much better job than they had before. And I think that um, they are not now afraid to use their power for social justice. That I mean, that was one of the things that uh, worked in the union's favor in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. <coughs> so um, I think that um, all along, social justice has been part of their um, program. Yes, it has gotten waylaid, and yes, there have been bad practices by some unions, but at that convention, all unions were agreeing that we have to make sure that um, a woman's right to choose is protected, and they have agreed they'll do everything they can, and we are working with them. Deborah Berger, co-president of National Nurses United, and still on the quest for Medicare for All and productive justice, you always have the right prescription for our health care. Thank you for being on. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight, but you can hear and see audio and video of the full segments uh, that tonight's audio excerpts were taken from by checking out the links up at laborexpress.org. That's laborexpress.org. I also want to recommit to bring you more on this attack on women and workers as a result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade on future episodes, so make sure to keep tuning in. Labor Express is a non-profit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. Those expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide, 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. 